I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. I realize uh, from a couple of conversations and just my own reflection that I failed to convey some significant point last week, which is that it is my intention to begin a series on Exodus. Uh, So for those who were here last week, it was not just a um, one and done on Exodus, but it was just an intro intro to what could be a very long time in the book of Exodus. Uh, It's a long book. I trust by God's grace he'll make it profitable to us. Be reading Exodus chapter 1, beginning at the start until the end of chapter 1, not the book. (laughs) Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful. And increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Let's pray. Father, we take this moment to reflect and consider that you have given us your word And you have called us to listen with attentiveness to it. Father, I pray for these next moments that we have together that you, by your Spirit, would draw our attention and grip us 
with your word and not let go. And Lord, we wouldn't avoid in our own hearts dealing with anything that your word by your spirit would bring up as far as conviction goes, but we would be dealing with it even in these next 40 or so minutes. Lord, grant us your grace and teach us your word. I pray in Christ's name, amen. There was an article uh, just put out by NPR, and its title is, America's Christian Majority is on Track to End. The story or the, of that article begins with a young woman who grew up, LDS, is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as Mormons, and tells her story about how she has left the church in her early 20s. Now, a story that is titled America's Christian Majority is on track to end and then begins talking about the LDS church doesn't have its ducks in a row. Yet the point remains, as they cite Pew Research, it says Christianity remains the majority religion in the United States as it has been since the country's founding, but it's on the decline. The study found that Christians accounted for about 90% of population 50 years ago, but as of 2020, that figure has slumped to about 64%. The article goes on. If recent trends in switching or changing one's religious affiliation hold, we projected that Christians could make up between 35% and 46% of the U.S. population in 2070, said Stephanie Kramer, the senior researcher who led the study. End quote. I could be reading into that article a little bit, but there seemed to be a certain amount of glee in that projection. You could read that article and have fear strike your heart depending on your position. You could have fear of what it would be like to be a religious minority in a culture, in a country that is largely secular. You could be wondering what will happen if that happens in my lifetime. You might think it's already happened. Certainly looks that way to some degree. I'd like to just give a little parenthesis and say that I am by and large skeptical of statistics like that because they don't seem to account for the real church, which is much smaller than the statistics would project. Most Christians, or so-called Christians, don't believe that the Bible is God's word, don't believe the full deity of Christ, don't believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, etc., etc. But even so, if the numbers are declining, what will happen? Will the church's influence be negligible? What will happen to us? And there could be a level of fear of thinking, what is it going to be like if we are a minority? What will it be like if Christianity is not accepted as a good and true thing? What will it be like? And we're experiencing that to a large degree in our culture already, where Christianity is no longer tolerated, but in many facts, the tenets of Christianity are looked at as evil. They're not just looked at as neutral or even morally good. They are now looked at as 
wrong, and evil. How will we, res- we respond to this type of world that we live in? This morning, I want you to take confidence in the God of the Bible, not in numbers, not in statistics, not in religious liberties or lack thereof, not in who is elected to president, not who is in charge, not who is in government, not in what the laws say, but in the God of the Bible who speaks and always fulfills his word. We have in our Bible statements spoken by our Christ like this, Matthew sixteen eighteen, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do you fear the church may fall into insignificance? Well, Christ has spoken, and his word will stand. Or do you fear that the troubles of the world will overcome you as you face a variety of challenges in your workplace or at home or just in the culture in which we live? Do you fear that these troubles might overcome you? Jesus has spoken again, John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Do you wonder if you'll be overcome with difficulties, even the worst kind? Romans 8, 38 to 39 declares, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Exodus chapter 1, we have a demonstration of God's intention to bless his people and fulfill his word no matter what comes at his people. Here you'll see that God bestows blessings to his people in agreement with his promise, but you will also see that his people will face difficulties. But those difficulties will not overcome them. God will preserve his word in spite and, in th- and through those difficulties. So are those statistics true? Will Christianity continue to dwindle in the West? Well, maybe in numbers of professed believers. But God will never abandon his people. So may God encourage you through this text that though difficulties will come, it is God's intention to bless his people who belong to him through Christ and never let them be overcome by those difficulties. For to give you a heading to kind of categorize our thoughts this morning, let me give you this one to start. It could just be that there are blessings for God's people due to God's promise. There are blessings for God's people due to God's promise. There's a a principle we'll try to unpack here in the beginning of Exodus. And I think that principle runs along these lines. And we have to understand this because this really runs to the core of all we would experience about God and his goodness towards us. It's that God 
is devoted to keeping his word. And because of his devotion to his own faithfulness, he will not abandon those to whom he has promised goodness. The reason that you will experience God's blessing and favor is not because of your goodness, because of your intrinsic faithfulness, because of your intrinsic righteousness. It is because God has spoken and he will keep his word. There are no real blessings in our world or in our lives apart from God's promises. We may have temporary joys or temporary apparent victories in our life or temporary prosperity or temporary health or temporary peace or temporary delight in life. The world can experience those things. But real lasting joy, real lasting blessing from God only comes from God and is only in agreement with his promises. As we talk about some of the blessings in the Old Testament, they're going to be on the level of physical blessings, and there's nothing against physical blessings, but we have to think with a New Testament mindset as well. And so as I talk about blessings, I don't want you to think that I'm turning into some sort of prosperity preacher, that I expect that your bank account's going to be full and your car is going to be waxed and cleaned by your servant. We are not thinking about that. Perhaps it would be worth your time to turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and see the kind of blessings that God has bestowed on his people who are in Christ Jesus now. These don't talk about money. These don't talk about health. Talk about something so much better. Ephesians 1, 3, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." Notice the blessings there. The blessings are every spiritual blessing 
in the heavenly places. It is to be blameless and holy before Him. It is to be called His sons through adoption. It is to be redeemed through the blood of Christ, to receive the forgiveness of our trespasses. It is to know His mystery of His will, to obtain an inheritance from Him, and to have the very Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us. Those are the blessings God has given to His people based on promise, received through faith, And those are the kind of blessings that the world cannot take away from us because God has spoken and he will fulfill his word. These blessings are real. Some of them are now. Some of them are to come. But they're the lasting blessing of God originating in his word and his plans. Now let's see some of these truths unfold in the book of Exodus. You can turn back there to chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, begins not exactly where Genesis left off. It actually refers back a few chapters in Genesis. But it's a reminder to us that this book falls as the second book of the Bible and is a continuation of God's work that has begun in Genesis. And this is important to remember because as you read through Exodus chapter 1, God does not seem to have a prominent role in the text. He's only really mentioned when the Hebrew midwives show up, but his handwriting is all over it because the reason that we're reading about these situations is because God began to do something in Genesis. And so you can't understand Exodus without understanding God. Some people try to come to the book of Exodus and just understand it from a purely historical backdrop But you can't do that because Exodus makes no sense without God's involvement in it. And so we're not taking a secular view of this, of course. We're taking the right view, which is that God is involved in the life of his people. Exodus begins by recounting the names of the sons of Israel who came into the land of Egypt. Twelve sons of Israel. Look back at Genesis 46. And you'll see that this picks up where 46.8 left off. It says, Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. And then it lists Jacob's sons. It reminds us that the Israelites were not always in Egypt. In Genesis 46, we find that Jacob and his family are relocating from the land of Canaan into Egypt because They just happen to have a brother there who has spared the whole world through saving some grain. And so during this time of severe famine, Jacob and his family sojourn to Egypt because Joseph has been there to prepare a way for them. They can't survive in the land of Canaan, and they're given the choice land in Egypt, and they go there. But before they go there, God has spoken to Jacob in the beginning of chapter 46. He says in verse 3, God speaks to Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. God speaks that it's okay to go to Egypt because there God will make a great nation of Jacob and his descendants. 
And this is consistent with what God has been promising to do throughout the book of Genesis. Look back at Genesis 15 to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. Genesis 15, verse 5, that famous scene where Abraham is waiting for a son, wants to make his servant his heir. God refuses that, brings Abraham outside in Genesis 15, 5, and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he, that's God, said to him, Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And then in chapter 15, verse 18, God, it says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaim, and so on. God has promised to Abraham that his family to come will be as numerable as the stars or as innumerable as the stars, and he promises a land. But now Abraham's descendants find themselves in another land with 70 people. What's going to happen to these promises? Well, because God has spoken, we know what's going to happen. After listing all of the descendants in Exodus 1, verse 6, it says, Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. And you might be caused to wonder what's going to happen now. That whole generation has died. Is God going to forget about what he had promised to do? Of course, the answer is no. He will continue. Look at verse 7 of Exodus 1. It says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. That language, if you're familiar with it, should remind you of what God said in Genesis 1.28 when he blessed Adam and Eve and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And when he talks about the sea creatures, he talks about them swarming and multiplying and the creepy things on the ground kind of swarm and multiply. And now the Descendants of the Israelites are becoming like that. They're fruitful, they're multiplying, they're growing exceedingly strong, they're swarming the land. This is happening because God has spoken and God will bring it to pass. If you consider the statistics I mentioned at the beginning, what's happening to the church is the church in decline? Is the church going into insignificance? What's happening to God's people? Only God knows the true number. But you can read the end of the story. And as you come to the book of Revelation, you will find that the saints who are in heaven, the redeemed, those who have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb, are innumerable and fill heaven with their praises. And even now, though we might think that the church is dwindling, what a great time for the American church to be purified, to show what it really is, to be people who are faithful unto God and prove his promises by trusting in him 
And I think we will see God does not abandon his people. And though the statistics might say otherwise, the true church will never die out. God will be faithful to his promises. In Acts, when you see the church, that small church that just begins as 120 people and then spreads to 3,000 people and then they get scattered out into the lands and they're these small churches, they're not the majority of the cities that they dwell in, but they are claiming to have turned the world upside down with their gospel. And it says that the church increased. God will keep his word. His people will not be snuffed out. And yet there is going to be troubles and difficulties. And so here's the second heading. It's that God will preserve his blessings even in difficulties. God will preserve his blessings even in difficulties. It would seem at the end of verse 7 that things are going well for the Israelites. They're being fruitful and multiplied. They're swarming the land but difficulties are never too far around the corner for God's people. This begins this infamous story about Pharaoh and the Israelites, which will continue through most of the chapters of, or the next few chapters of Exodus. The people of Israel become too many and too mighty for the Egyptians. It says in Exodus 1, verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. And just one quick comment on background. Um, if you like to study the Bible and you get into the details of it, there will be endless debates about when is this happening and who's the Pharaoh. And if you're interested in that, read to your heart's content, but I'm not going to address it here. The author of Exodus seems to be intentionally, intentionally obscure with some details here. And so we have to let him go to the level of depth that he goes to and focus on the things that he focuses on. And he never names the Pharaoh of the story for us. But he does mention what he wants us to know, that this Pharaoh did not know Joseph. It's likely not intending to mean that he didn't have a clue who he was. It's likely to communicate to us that he just didn't care who he was and what he had done. And so the Israelites now have no reputation with Pharaoh. Joseph was that second in command who really saved Egypt and the whole world by God's providence. And now the new Pharaoh doesn't care one bit about this Joseph. And he sees these Israelites who are foreigners in the land and has this concern that this people that is growing mighty and strong is a threat to the Egyptians. There are too many and too mighty for us. His concern is really a political one because he sees these, nat- uh, these non-native Egyptians becoming populous in his land and considers them to be a military and political threat to his rule. I think it's worth considering it was God who brought the Israelites to Egypt It was God who preserved the Israelites in Egypt. 
It was God who prospered the Israelites in Egypt and made them grow. And now because of God's blessing, the Israelites gain unwanted attention from this Pharaoh who doesn't want them. Some of our problems in our life come because God has promised to be good to us. This Pharaoh wants to deal with this threat that he perceives. In verse 10, he says, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. This Pharaoh says that he wants to, quite literally, let us deal wisely according to the Israelites. His goal is to deal wisely, not wisely for the Israelites, but wisely for his people. He wants to be wise in regard to the Israelites, and yet he fails to recognize the fundamental rule of wisdom, which is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This Pharaoh is coming up with his own wisdom, and God promises in Isaiah 29, 14, or threatens that the wisdom of the wise will perish. In Psalm 105, 23 to 25, it says that then Israel came to Egypt, Jacob sojourned in the land land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. So here we have Pharaoh trying to deal craftily, wisely, towards the Israelites. And his attempt here is just based on mere human wisdom and ignores God's plan and involvement in all of this. His goal is to prevent Israel from establishing or being part of any kind of military victory over the Egyptians. He says if the war breaks out, they would join our enemies and fight against us and then escape from the land. So notice exactly what this Pharaoh is trying to avoid by dealing wisely with the Israelites. He's trying to avoid military conflict, and he's trying to avoid the Israelites escaping from the land. And if you read a little bit further in the book of Exodus, you will find that the entire Egyptian army is wiped out, and the Israelites escape from the land. There goes Pharaoh's plan. So much for dealing with human wisdom. God is a God who overthrows the wisdom of the wise. This Pharaoh wants to keep the Israelites escaping from escaping. If you were there, you could say, good luck with that. How will Pharaoh enact his wisdom? Well, he has three ways. The first way is verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. The first way is to set taskmasters and to afflict the people. They're trying to make life miserable for the Israelites. They want to put burdens on them, heap them up with burdens too heavy to bear. And so they have taskmasters, and in some of the Egyptian reliefs, 
you see these taskmasters with whips that drive the servants, and so this was far from a pleasant experience for the Israelites. In verse 13, it says that they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. They just try to overcome them with kind of brute force and enslave them. And yet, they want to capitalize on their labor. And so they make them build these store cities, make them work in various difficult tasks. Well, what happened? Was, were they successful? Were the Egyptians successful? Well, it says in verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. This is the way it works. When you have people who are trying to overcome God's people, God will not let that happen, and it will only serve to accomplish His purposes all the more. They afflicted them, and yet they spread abroad more. And so Pharaoh comes up with another solution in response to this. He instructs now the Hebrew midwives to basically commit genocide by killing all of the male children. Verse 15, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. So now the intent of this Pharaoh is to wipe out the male children of the Israelites through the midwives. Since the people are multiplying, the idea is just to commit genocide. And he commands the Hebrew midwives to kill all the male children that are born. And the goal would be to reduce the amount of men who would be able to fight. And he would leave the female babies so that, no doubt, the Egyptian men could take them as wives. And so, as he spares the women, the girls, and wants to kill the boys, he enlists the help of these two Hebrew Midwives. By the way, it's worth noting that the Pharaoh is not named, but these two obscure midwives are. Their names go down in history, and this Pharaoh is lost to us. We have guesses at who he was, but the scripture doesn't name him, but we know the names of these two midwives, Shifra, Pua, who are more important to God. Well, there are two who get named. The problem with Pharaoh's plan is that the midwives that he enlists are God-fearing women. And if you've ever met a God-fearing woman, she is a force to be reckoned with. And he's got two of them. They fear God. Verse 17 the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. 
To fear God means to recognize that God sees you even when other people don't. It is to recognize that they knew that they would be doing wrong before God, even if Pharaoh said it was right. It is to say that we must obey God rather than men. I hope you know the fear of God in your life. I had an experience a few months ago where I had to uh, go to the dump and drop some things off. And I had to report how much I was uh, throwing away to pay for it. And it was strongly implied to me that I could basically make up whatever number I wanted and pay for that rather than the reality of what I threw away. And um, despite the temptation to pay only a few dollars for what would be a hefty bill, I had to tell this guy, I serve a God who knows what I am doing right now. And so even if you offer this to me, I can't do it. God knows what we do all the time. He sees everywhere we go. He knows what we do. And so we have to fear him. We must obey God rather than men. Now, these two Hebrew midwives were put in a much more serious situation than with a guy at the dump. They had to deal with Pharaoh, probably the most mighty ruler that they would ever see, certainly that they would see, perhaps worldwide. And they have been tasked to kill these Hebrew children. But they let the Hebrew boys live. This gets found out. And Pharaoh calls them, verse 18, and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The Hebrew midwife or the midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now, is that a lie? A lot of people think so, that they're just flat out lying to Pharaoh. But I think it fits with the line of this story. Pharaoh was willing to let the Hebrew women be spared. And he was willing to employ Hebrew women to do his dirty work. And yet, God is blessing the Israelites in being fruitful and multiplying. And that involves the women very substantially. And what kind of women has God put among the Hebrews? Well, apparently women who are vigorous in giving birth and give birth before the midwives get there. Because why? God is blessing them to fulfill his promises to let these children come into the world to multiply the Hebrew people. Pharaoh says, kill the boys and let the girls live. And yet we see here that God is using the women to preserve the Hebrews. This is not some feminist text. It's just the reality that God is about preserving people in ways that we don't expect necessarily. God's intention to bless the Israelites is unassailable. And God preserves his people through the unlikely characters of the Hebrew midwives. God can raise up who he wants, 
when he wants, how he wants to accomplish the fulfillment of his promises. And so we never have to fear that God has no cards to play, that his hand is empty, that he has nothing left to do, that he has no ideas or no way out, no way of escape or nothing for his people left. God always has his plan and will always accomplish it. And sometimes he'll do it through two Hebrew midwives. The church going to fail, God will always preserve his people, sometimes in very unlikely ways. Well, since these, the second plan of Pharaoh didn't work out so well, he goes on to his third tactic to suppress the Israelites. Verse 22. Oh, forgive me, I forgot verse 21. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. God saw what they had done, and he blessed them Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now the tactic is to let the Egyptians as a people know what needs to be done. Just mass genocide. Take the Hebrew boys, toss them into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. We won't get into it this time, but there's great irony here if you know what happens in chapter 2. Because Pharaoh's intention of getting rid of the Israelites' power by having the Hebrew people, or having the Egyptian people get rid of the Hebrew boys, is going to be overthrown by Pharaoh's own daughter. Pharaoh's third attempt, tell the people to kill the Hebrew boys, but this isn't going to work out too well because through this ploy, God is going to raise up the deliverer for his people. This text is so helpful in reminding us that there will be enemies against God's people all the time And they will come up with tactics that they think are brilliant. And yet we have a God who knows no end to his brilliance, no end to his power, and will always work to bring about the fulfillment of his word. If you belong to Christ, you possess the promises of, of God. And because God has spoken, he will zealously defend the fulfillment of his word. Jesus said, in this world you will have troubles. Troubles are guaranteed. They're going to come. They're going to look like they're going to threaten and undo the very promises God has made to you. But be assured that the very threats to your existence as a believer in Christ will prove to be the very means God uses to bring about his good and the fulfillment of his plans to you. That's Romans 8, 28. And we know 
that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What kinds of things might come against you? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. And yet Paul writes, Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is, no one, nothing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word possesses such great hope for us, confidence, building truth. I pray that you would use Exodus 1 to sustain us this week, to remind us that whatever difficulties come into our life that would threaten us, threaten our faith, oh Lord, you are mighty to overcome them. And you will prove yourself faithful. Lord, I would ask you that you would help us to trust you, to fear you, to rely on you with all of our heart, not to succumb to the fears and temptations of this world. Lord, so many people would tell us to be fearful, would give us statistics to worry about, and yet your word is as sure as the day you wrote it. And it's proven itself again and again to be true. Lord, help us to abide in your word and be faithful to Christ until the end. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.